In this week's episode, I bring back financial therapist, Lindsay Brian Podvin to talk about a heated and juicy topic. We discuss financial enabling versus financial generosity and what to consider before giving someone money. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Welcome to the Mental Health and Wealth Show podcast. This is your host, Melanie Lockhart. My journey with money and mental health started in 2012 when I was depressed and anxious about my student loan debt. In 2013, I started my blog, Dear Debt, which chronicled my debt payoff journey and changed my life. I later published my book of the same name about how I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt. It was my time blogging that showed me that I wasn't alone in my mental health struggles around money and that my own mental health impacted how I related to money. My mission now is to help others feel less alone and tackle these difficult topics. As a disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional or a financial professional, and all content on the show should not be considered professional medical or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. If you are in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much for being here, and if you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform, and feel free to share episodes on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockert. I would love to hear from you. Hello, regular listeners and random people who have discovered and stumbled upon this podcast. I want to let you know that after three years of creating and producing this podcast, that this will be the last podcast episode for the foreseeable future. Unfortunately, the podcast is no longer sustainable for my own financial and mental health, and I want to really honor where I'm at with my energy, my career, and my life. So I want to say thank you so much for listening over the years, and if you feel so inclined, I'd love to hear from you about your favorite episodes, what you've learned, and also you can continue to support my work by leaving a review so others can still find these episodes, and also buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. Thank you so much for being on this journey with me. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm bringing back Lindsay Brian Podvin, who is a biracial financial wellness expert, speaker, and author of the book, The Financial Anxiety Solution. Definitely check that out. It's amazing. She is a practicing social worker since 2012 and uses a shame-free approach to help people get their minds and money in balance by focusing on the intersection of money and mental health using financial therapy. While financial literacy is important, she champions the belief that money is rooted in emotions and impacted by the systems around us. She has a degree in sociology and a master's in social work with certificates in financial social work and financial therapy. She lives with her partner and their dog on the occupied land of the Fox, Peoria, and Potawatomi peoples, also known as Michigan. Welcome back to the show. I am so thrilled to be back here and talking about something like you said right before we hit record that'll probably be a pretty nuanced and juicy chat. Yes, this is going to be a very emotionally charged, nuanced, lots to unpack here. And I just want to start out by saying that we are not the experts. We do not have the answers. We just want to tackle this topic because there's so much to uncover. And so without further ado, we are talking about 
financial enabling versus financial generosity. When are we helping people by giving money? When are we harming people by giving money? When is money used as a form of power and manipulation? Or when is it used as a gift to help someone lift them out of a bad situation, right? There are so many incidences where money can be a gift or maybe it can you know, be enabling a person to not experience consequences, right? There's so much to unpack here. And so this topic came to me because of personal experiences where I felt like I have financially enabled a partner because I didn't want to experience those consequences and I didn't want to see them experience those consequences. But because of that, this person never learned, I'm also thinking of some kind of extreme pop culture examples. You know, I was watching the Bernie Madoff Netflix documentary and very early on in his scheme, he lost all the money and his father-in-law bailed him out so he can continue going. And once again, he did not experience the consequences of his failure. And also I'm watching Bling Empire in New York and... You know, these are these very wealthy individuals who come from wealthy families. And one of the characters in the show is very paranoid that her dad's going to cut her off after school and not going to give her money anymore. And what is she going to do with her expensive lifestyle, right? So these are extreme examples. Obviously, not everyone can relate to the level of these examples, but we've all been there where maybe, you know, we've given money to a family, a friend, a loved one. And we think that we're helping, but maybe we felt resentful or angry or like we're getting, you know, taken advantage of. Or maybe we feel like we're doing the right thing, but then we wonder why we don't have money. And so there's so much to unpack here, which is why I brought Lindsay on the show, because I think so many of us can relate to this in some way. And there's lots to discuss. So I wanted to get started and just dive right in and say, I want to talk about financial enabling and its relationship to codependency. Um, I have some personal experience, which I can share later, but I want to talk to you about what is the relationship there? Great question. So enabling is where a person who is in this giver or rescuer or caretaker role kind of swoops in to help somebody else so that they can continue their lifestyle in a way that may be harmful. So when we're talking about financial enabling, we are talking about potentially continuing to bail out an adult who engages in gambling behavior. So maybe they get into a lot of trouble and they have a big tab at a casino and the enabler would go in and pay off that debt, thus allowing the person who is struggling to not have what we call in the therapy world, quote unquote, natural consequences. A smaller example of this would be maybe a young adult who was told by their parent, like you're on your own for your cell phone and a few months go by and the kid comes to the parent and says, oh my gosh, I have not been able to 
pay my cell phone bill and the parents kind of watching their social media and going, huh, you, you can't pay your cell phone bill, but you manage to go out every weekend and you have these like cute brunch shots and things like that. This feels weird. But instead of saying, sorry, you're going to have to call up the cell phone company and work out a payment plan, they swoop in and say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it for you. And being an enabler, again, prevents the person who's in this position from having natural consequences. And they tend to kind of keep secrets. So if we think about, let's say, adult parents who are enabling their adult child, they might have a person in that dynamic. Let's say parent A is really good at bailing out the kid, but parent B is a bit tougher and won't bail them out. So parent A might like quietly slip their adult child some money or quietly just add them back to the cell phone plan. So they'll keep secrets, they'll make excuses, and they'll bail them out. And then when we think of the codependent relationship, it's a, the term isn't all-encompassing because it's really a... Um, a dysfunctional relationship. It's a type of a dysfunctional relationship where the person who is giving or quote unquote enabling is doing it so that they get something in return. They are bailing them out so that they will get a thank you. I love you. I'll never leave you. Um, so it's codependent because the enabling behavior allows them to stay in some sort of relationship with a person who is not actually getting the natural consequences of their actions. So financial abling and codependency can be intertwined, but it's not always true that an enabler is a codependent. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes so much sense. And thanks so much for clarifying that, that, you know, it's not always necessarily in a codependent relationship, but it can be. And I just want to clarify quickly before we move forward that when we are talking about financial enabling, we are assuming that the other person is an adult, is able-bodied, is of, you know, sound physical and mental health and can theoretically take care of themselves, right? I just want to make that very clear before moving forward. And I yes. also want to share my experience. So in my previous relationship that ended, you know, it turned into a codependent relationship where I financially enabled him and he emotionally enabled me. I, you know, he was like my emotional support person and I didn't know how to take care of myself emotionally and he didn't know how to take care of himself financially. And so we each, you know, kind of took care of these things for each other without ever having to realize how to take care of ourselves in these separate different ways. Right. And, you know, at first it feels really good to be like, I can pay the rent, I can pay the bills. But then when someone keeps quitting jobs or, you know, not contributing at all. And it feels like they make one-sided decisions when you're in a relationship, then it can be like, oh, this, this is feeling um, unbalanced. And this is starting to make me feel <laughs> resentful and angry. And, you know, but I kept with it because on one hand, I could not accept the consequences. Like it gave me so much anxiety to know this person could not manage their own finances. So then it felt like, let me be, you know, the person to jump in and save this situation so that we both don't have to deal with this. And then, you know, as you said, this created a situation where there were never any consequences. Therefore, you never have to learn or change. And what you talked about earlier about usually the other person is getting something out of it. Well, 
talking about dysfunctional, like it got to a point where I was like, as long as I'm helping him out financially, he needs me. And if he needs me, he's not going to leave me. And then, I mean, I had to leave eventually, which was really hard, but you know, it got to this point where you feel like you have a sense of power. You kind of confuse love with being needed. It can create a lot of dysfunctional dynamics. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I so appreciate you sharing that story and it, it isn't so cut and dry. Um, and, and what I heard there is that by the time you reached what was the end of that relationship, you were able to see, wow, when I support him financially, I'm hoping that I get relationship stability in exchange. But I imagine it did not start out that black and white. You're like, okay, I'll give them money and they'll give me a relationship. But it's over time you realize that those are the patterns that were created and being reinforced in that dynamic. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was a pattern that has showed up in my family in various different ways. And it became one of those things where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm recreating dynamics that I thought I never would. And here I am. And, you know, that's where um, we often say that sometimes we recreate relationships that are very familiar to us that aren't necessarily good for us because they feel safe, but they're not healthy. And so it took me a lot to eventually leave, to eventually heal, to eventually realize that I did these things because of my own anxiety, because I was trying to manipulate an outcome that felt better for me because it's easier for me to just pay the bills and feel like, great, we don't have to be anxious about this not being paid rather than having hard conversations. And, you know, it's kind of a way to stall decision-making because obviously eventually I did realize that this is not changing. This is not going anywhere. There were lots of other issues at hand that led to the ultimate demise of that relationship. But, you know, when you continue to save people and prevent them from experiencing consequences, it's a way to postpone making a decision, right? If I would have stopped helping out, like I probably would have realized way sooner that this relationship is not equal. This relationship is not working. This is not quote, just a rough patch where I'm helping us get through this specific period of time where we're in transition. This is longer than a year or two, and this is continuing to happen, right? And so I think it's really important for people to realize that it can be a way of stalling in a way. Yeah, it absolutely can be this this delay of facing the music, if that makes sense, of if I keep this pattern going, then I don't have to address how harmful the pattern is. Absolutely. So I know we talked about this a little bit, but I want to dive a little bit further into what we're talking about. So, you know, sometimes we we want to help people and money can be a tool to do that. But sometimes we prevent people from experiencing those consequences or learning on their own. So what do you think is the difference between financial enabling and financial generosity? Mm, So I think if we go back to what enabling is, it's preventing a person from experiencing some natural consequences versus financial generosity. And, And again, with the enabling, it's not always true that there's a codependent relationship, but there may be a codependent relationship there. 
oftentimes when we're looking at generosity, there isn't an ulterior motive of the person giving, right? They're saying something, um, it's a, it's a way of giving without hoping for anything in return. Whereas in enabling, there is this inherent subconscious return, be it the return of a person's attention, a return of the person's phone calls, right? There is a lot of different things there. Um, and when we think about enabling, what can be really tricky about it is that we have, you know, you and I are in the U.S., there's this narrative that as soon as you turn 18, you're independent and you're an adult, but that's actually not true. And what research has found is that I think it's right around 75% of folks between the ages of 19 and 29 get some sort of financial support from their parents or whomever was their caregiver. And when I say financial support, that could be anything from letting them stay on the family cell phone plan to maybe even as much as paying for their rent or a car payment or things like that. When we think about enabling, we also think about removing from a person the natural ability to learn how to function a bit more independently. I think you and I share similar beliefs where we're not exactly bought into this idea that rugged individualism is the best thing. But I think more about the metaphor of if you see a, a chrysalis, that's you know the encasing of a caterpillar as it turns into a butterfly. And if you're like, ooh, that butterfly is trying to get out and you kind of gently crack open that chrysalis, what actually happens is that that butterfly does not develop the strength of its wings and will often be not able to fly as far or not be able to fly at all. Whereas if a butterfly kind of presses their wings up against the edges of that chrysalis, over time it will develop the strength that is needed so it can break out of that chrysalis on its own and be able to fly. Now, of course, life is not that easy breezy, but I think about that a lot when we're thinking about enabling is that are you temporarily solving a problem like getting that butterfly out of the chrysalis, but delaying a natural consequence? So, yes, maybe you're you're supporting your adult child's rent but they also haven't had to get a job. And again, we're talking about a person who is able-bodied, able-minded, and wants to be in the working world, but they aren't actually working. You are preventing them from learning how to have some of those awkward interactions, how to put in their resume for a bunch of different jobs, how to strengthen their interviewing skills, how to land and retain a job by ensuring that they continually have something like housing. Um, and I realize as I say that example, it's not exactly my belief set. Like I think if you have the capacity to provide some additional scaffolding, that can be really beautiful. Um, and, and to use another therapy term, scaffolding is temporary parental support that helps a child or an adult child be able to function on their own. So it is a short-term time-limited help. And I think about that a lot when we're thinking about enabling versus scaffolding. And so scaffolding might look like we'll pay for your groceries for the first three months of your job as you're working on getting your paycheck in order and figuring out your budget. Then after that, you're on your own. Or while you're um, studying for finals, we will give you a Grubhub gift card so you don't have to worry about 
doing groceries during that time. It's a short-term time-limited aid or buoy, but it is not a replacement for them moving forward. Does that help? Absolutely. Yeah. I love those examples and I love the butterfly metaphor. I think that is so beautiful. I'm a huge fan of butterflies. And I think, you know, that was such a beautiful metaphor and example of exactly what we're talking about and the differences between financial enabling and generosity. So diving a little bit more into kind of the roles that people take when they are enabling. And oftentimes I think people are unknowingly enabling people. They think that they're just, you know, being helpful. Like I'm just being nice. Maybe they secretly subconsciously want to feel needed kind of like I did. Um, but as we mentioned before, that that can add to a dysfunctional dynamic. And speaking from my experience personally, oftentimes you don't even realize that it is a dysfunctional dynamic until you get out and start healing. And then you're like, oh my gosh, that was dysfunctional. Okay. Like it felt normal while it was happening. But then as I got out of that situation, I learned how to heal. I learned different coping skills and mechanisms and modalities. Oh, wow. That was dysfunctional. So I'm curious, like how can enabling potentially be part of a dysfunctional dynamic and how can we inhabit these roles that are potentially unhealthy for us? Enabling can be a part of an unhealthy dynamic because of just the nature of what it is. You're preventing that person from facing some of those natural consequences, but not only the natural consequences, you're also taking from them their ability to strengthen and hone in on some of their own coping skills or abilities. I think about growing up in the 90s where there were a lot of helicopter parents around, right? You'd get to the science fair and you'd look around and you'd be like, well, my parents made me do my own experiment, but I'm looking around here. And I can tell you 99% of these kids had their parents do their science experiment for them. And so to use that example, it can potentially take away from that child the ability to go, wow, I have the skills to finish the science experiment or to use a glue stick and stick something up onto some poster board. And as we talk about financial enabling, if you think about a young adult who is out on their own, who is consistently being enabled enabled by their parents when they miss a deadline on a bill or um, something like that, they are then losing out on their ability to tap into some of their own coping skills. For example, if they are used to just texting or calling a parent and saying, oh, shoot, don't have enough money for rent, and that rent is consistently getting covered, they're never learning a skill such as cultivating a spending plan or maybe thinking through what are the things that I'm doing right now that might not be serving me in the long run. Um, as we kind of move from, let's say we're on the recipient end of being enabled, thinking through like, what would you do if you couldn't go to your enabler? So what would you do if you couldn't go to your parent or grandparent or partner, financially speaking? How would you problem solve this? And just giving people the free range and the license to get creative, to tap into their why self and to be able to hone in on some of their own coping skills. We take that away from them when we financially enable other people. So it's not just the dynamic of like, oh, letting them fall on their face, but also the dynamic of you're taking away from them their ability to build their own self-esteem up. Are you ready to transform your money mindset? 
You can now purchase Lindsay O'Brien Podvin's session from the Mental Health and Wealth Summit that I hosted a few years ago. The session is all about shifting your money mindset and is just $20 and is roughly an hour. That way you can support us both and continue your journey on transforming your money mindset and your financial and mental health. You can buy the digital download at melanielocker.gumroad.com. That's M-E-L-A-N-I-E-L-O-C-K-E-R-T dot G-U-M-R-O-A-D dot com. We'll also have the link available in the show notes. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, it can lead to a dysfunctional dynamic because it prevents the other person from building that confidence for themselves by doing these things in heterosexual relationships where the woman might be caretaking the man. It can be emasculating, which can lead to different power gender dynamics. You know, money can be a tool for power and control. So, I mean, there's so many things that it can lead to that is just, you know, straight up dysfunctional and does not lead to healthy coping, healthy relating, healthy intimacy. Um, Yeah, I think there are so many consequences in how this can play out, especially in romantic relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think it's important for listeners to understand that you can be in a dysfunctional relationship dynamic that isn't abusive, but oftentimes it can tip into financial abuse. And when we think about domestic violence situations, financial abuse is present in 99% of domestic violence situations. So financial abuse is the next level above and beyond just enabling or some dysfunction or some tension. It is really making it so the person cannot financially escape a relationship or situation. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because financial abuse is a topic that I'm very passionate about. And, you know, I think it's something we need to talk about more because, yeah, the statistics are alarming that that is present in 99% of domestic violence cases. And I also want to shout out my favorite nonprofit, Free From, which helps victims of financial abuse and domestic violence to get back on their feet through entrepreneurship. So if you have any money that you would like to give to a nonprofit, I recommend free from, I think they're doing fantastic work in the financial space moving forward. So I wanted to talk a little bit about culture and family. So I got this question from a follower. And so I definitely want us to tackle this because I think it's such an important topic that many people are experiencing. So how are you supposed to set boundaries if you are the first generation to financially succeed and you're from a culture that expects you to support your parents? This is such a hard question because because when we think about expectations and boundaries and clear communication, a lot of the ways that we're thinking about it is through the lens of being in the US and being a rugged individualist society and being a Western society. And I think it can be really harmful to shift from one end of the spectrum to another, or in other words, be like, okay, I came from a pretty communal culture and now I'm in a Western culture, so I'm going to suddenly become a rugged individualist. I think before we even get to setting boundaries, I think extending some compassion and empathy for your parents, your grandparents, your ancestors, and thinking about how that communal living or the the community and familial focus helped them to quite literally stay safe and continue 
continue on generation to generation. So before you call up your parent and you say, you know what, we're American, gosh darn it, I'm not paying for anything, or you know, you can't expect me just to come over on a whim, I think it can be helpful, even if you don't say this to your parents who are of a different um, background, if they're immigrants, but for you to kind of do some of that work there and then kind of find that space in between because I think a lot of personal finance noise is incredibly rugged individualist and can make people feel really embarrassed or really ashamed if that is a part of their family dynamic and it feels healthy and it feels supportive and it feels expansive, we don't wanna take that away from somebody. So finding your happy medium of what would it look like and feel like for me to honor my culture and my family's country of origin and feel financially stable and secure on my own. So first kind of doing some soul searching around that. And then when it comes to the boundaries, one thing about boundaries is that they're subject to change. And I think when we think about boundaries, we're like, all right, I'm going to come up with this amazing plan. I'm going to tell my parents, or I'm going to tell my friends, and it's just going to stick without ever giving people room for revisiting them. I know me personally, my boundaries have swung all over the place and I've had to find happy mediums and it changes from time to time. Um, so when you're thinking about setting boundaries with your parents from a culture that expects you to support them, first take a look at your finances. What can you actually financially afford to do that won't put you in financial harm's way? Maybe you can't afford to renovate their kitchen, but maybe you can afford to drop off groceries every other week. Maybe you can't take them on every single vacation with you, but maybe they can join you once a year. So really look at what can we actually financially afford to do and what can we commit to doing and how can we revisit the conversation um, and doing it with a lot of patience and grace and opportunity for that conversation to be ongoing, which I know can be really challenging when we're talking about talking to our parents about money but saying to them, you know what, right now, what feels really good for me to be able to do and to help out with is X. I feel really comfortable taking you to your medical appointments and helping you figure out your, your bills because the American healthcare system is a nightmare, right? That might be a great way that you can support them, but maybe you say, you know what, outside of that, that that's kind of where I'm at, that's my capacity. So it's about finding, about honoring where they came from, figuring out what feels good for you and being open and honest to having those boundaries shift and ebb and flow over time. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think this topic is so important because in personal finance, I don't think we talk about this enough. And, you know, I just want to talk a little bit about the rugged individualism in American culture. So in America, we often think that we're just taking care of ourselves. And there's this idea that, you know, certain people in America that come from a family of means, they might get an inheritance later on, they might come into contact with some money from their family. Whereas I think from people from other countries and other cultures, it might be reversed, that they are expected to support their parents, that money is flowing the other direction. And, you know, that can kind of shift the parental child dynamic. And I think that's a lot to deal with. And then I think if you're the first generation in this country and your parents have a different cultural community background, that's also a whole different landscape. It's a whole different mindset. And there's a lot of tension there between this is how my family grew up and they have certain expectations and conditioning 
I might have had a completely different upbringing and I was not raised to believe this because of my culture, my friendships, my job, American media, X, Y, Z. And so, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And I think, you know, I don't think supporting your parents is enabling if it's done in a way that feels good for you. And that feels like you are bettering the family. Like, My partner is Peruvian and he very clearly always tells me that our family has each other's back, like no problem, no questions asked. We helped everyone get through school. We helped everyone succeed and money's not an issue. Money's not a transaction. And like being with him has really helped my money mindset because he's always telling me, babe, not everything's a transaction. And I'm like, but what about being equal or or this or that. And he's like, babe, not everything's a transaction. And so, you know, thinking of it that way and kind of divorcing yourself from that reality that things don't have to be a transaction or it doesn't have to be, you know, I do this, you have to do that. It's just like, we are helping each other evolve and, and do different things, but in a way that was honoring myself as well, which brings me to my next question, which is sort of related to what we're talking about. You know, I think there are many people who work in the U.S. who may have family abroad and send money back to their home country and family members. And this is very common. You know, I don't think that is enabling, but what are ways that this can be brought up within the family and be sustainable for the giver? You know, I was talking to some friends who are in this situation and there's this feeling that they're being asked by family members because they're perceived to be rich, which, you know, comparison to the US, that might be true. But when we look at the level of money and the cost of living in the US, we might be rich in comparison to other countries, but we're not rich within the country that we live in. So there can be some tension there. So I wanted to dive into a little bit of that. I I love this question because I think this two things can be true at once, right? It can be true that in the US in comparison, we may be rich compared to others. And it can also be true that in the US, the wages have not gone up when you adjust for inflation in 40 years. So if we think back to a family sending money home from the US in 1970, those dollars went so much further and there was likely so much more excess than there is now. So I think potentially doing a bit of loving level setting with the family that is expecting you to send money back to them and and being really clear like i would love to send more if i could but quite literally the cost of living here and my wages don't afford me the ability to send more than x dollars and sometimes just being that clear and that transparent can be helpful and sometimes you'll be met with like silence on the other end of the line and a blank stare and you'll they'll be like sorry this is just this is the way it is you have to keep doing it and then you have to have a more difficult conversation but i think it's really important for folks to understand that two things can be true at once and maybe readjusting the frequency or the amount of money that is getting sent back could potentially be helpful and thinking through i often think about like how do we as individuals or as families deal with windfalls? And people here might be like, what? What are you talking about, Lindsay? Not everyone's set up to like win the lottery or get an inheritance. But I'm talking about things like, um, like the other day in the mail, I got 
a check for like $48 or something like that from a class action lawsuit. And you can look online which class action lawsuits you're eligible for, but you're like, okay, cool. I have an extra 48 bucks. You could just go to dinner and call it a day, but I am much more a fan of kind of preemptively planning. What are you going to do with unexpected income? And in this situation, you might say, no matter what, if I ever get unexpected income, I'll always send an additional 20 bucks home, or I'll always send an additional 10% of whatever that unexpected income was back to my family or back to their country. Um, think about time like tax returns, rebates, things along those lines that maybe you weren't expecting. That could also be helpful, uh, especially if you're maybe moving from, I, I could give you money every month, but now it'll be more like every year, level setting that expectation as well. Yeah. And so I just want to talk about that a little further. So how can people deal with if you know their boundaries are met with anger or frustration or resentment or the person on the other side, you know, they're not happy about this. Yeah. I think one thing to note is that we cannot control how other people respond to us. And I think we also have to recognize that we might not get the response that we're hoping for. I was just listening to a podcast about uh, millennials, in particular millennials who are children of immigrants coming of age right now in the age of filmmaking and how there are all these movies right now that are getting the millennial dream of a parent apologizing to them. Um, and <laughs> I, yeah, it's, it's really great. And I think there's a lot of that here is that you may not be able to get that apology or not even an apology, but you might not be able to get the type of response you want when you say, look, I actually can't afford to give it to you you might get anger you might get heat you might get yelled at and rather than you know hoping that they change their tune or change their mind you may have to find the response that you're hoping for elsewhere and of course you can always come back to is this relationship healthy for me or unhealthy for me um, is this just a common way of expressing emotions certain cultures they are expressing emotions in ways in the u.s that we don't in certain cultures it's very common to like bang your, your, your fists on the table or yell and scream or do a lot of gesturing. And in the US, that often is anger. Whereas in other cultures, that is just another way of saying, I'm very passionate about this thing or this thing is very important to me, but we read it differently. So also thinking through like, is what I'm hearing actually what they're trying to express? And if I can't get the type of response I'm hoping to get from them, how can I maybe find space with other children of immigrants, of other first-gen, second-gen kids to talk about my experience and at least have validation, empathy, and understanding from other people because I might not get it from my parents or my extended family. That is so helpful. Thank you so much for kind of breaking that down and how to move forward. I love that answer. So here's another question that came from a follower that I want to pick your brain about. So when is it appropriate to help out a loved one and what to do if the ask feels like you're being taken advantage of? Great question. So in addition to scaffolding, which I mentioned earlier, is, is kind of a time-limited additional little boost of helping somebody out. Another way that we tend to help people out financially is through a what we call a safety net offer, which is like a one-time emergency situation or urgent situation where somebody in our family is asking for money just this once or every now and then. So think about 
Perhaps um, a loved one has to stop working for a little bit to take care of their chronic health issues and they need some additional money, but they're hoping that once they get their chronic health issues under control, they'll be able to return to work. That would be an example of a safety net time where you're extending financial support in a time limited way. So if you're able to look at the situation and be like, look, this family member really rarely reaches out to me for financial help. I know that they are good for what they say. I know that I can financially provide them with this money. Then I think it's fair to do it. One asterisk there is to be really clear on is this safety net money a gift or is it a loan? Meaning, are you expecting that family member to pay you back at a certain amount of time? Or are you feeling comfortable saying, you know what, please take this money. I hope that it helps. And it's a temporary um a temporary aid now what's interesting about this person's question is they say how can you help out a loved one and what do you do if you feel like you're being taken advantage of that question to me gets asked frequently so they seem like they're always an emergency something is always breaking down something is always somebody else's fault and they're only reaching out to you in these types of emergent situations right they're not calling to check in and ask how your day was they're not coming over to to visit and nurture that um, familial relationship they're only reaching out in the case of money so in the event that it feels like they're only asking for you when they need money from you that can be a good time to again check in with what are your boundaries what feels good to you and, and being really clear. And sometimes people don't even know that what they're doing is being perceived in that way. They have may, may have been in this situation for a lot of their lives where they're like, oh, cool, this person's always just gonna give me money. I'm just gonna ask them when I need it. They never seem to sweat it. They seem to have more than enough. And you might say to them, hey, you might not know this, but it seems like you only reach out to me when you need money. Right? And just sitting with that and seeing what happens, they might then have this realization of, oh my gosh, I never meant for that to be the intention. I just remember that one time in college when I asked for money and you were so generous and it felt so good to not be second guessed or have any questions asked. And I didn't even realize I fell into that dynamic. Now you also might be met with, as you mentioned earlier, Melanie, like some anger, some frustration. And then that's also worth kind of sitting with, like what are they really angry about here? And again, you always get to determine your boundaries. You always get to determine what feels safe for you. And there is no one size fits all. There's no, oh, any ask under $100 is appropriate and any ask over $100 is inappropriate. There, is, there isn't that cut and dry answer for a question like this. Oh, that was so great about, you know, speaking up and just letting them know like, hey, it only seems that you're reaching out when you need something. And that can be incredibly hard to have that courage to do. But if you can do it, yeah, it can change the dynamic because as we've said before, like, having a pattern in a relationship can lead to that dysfunction where it's like, oh, you said yes one time. So then I'm going to keep asking because you said yes. Right. And then it's not until we speak up or we break that pattern that things have the room to change. And, you know, I would say if you are giving money to a family member, a friend or whatever, Obviously, you can try to do your best to say either this is a gift or a loan, but in many cases, it might just be a gift. Think of it as a gift because you want to just release that money and not feel like it's um, a power move. You're, you're obsessing about it. You're thinking about it too much, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I think you're spot on thinking about loans to family members or to loved ones as gifts. Unless, of course, you go and get it in writing, right? Like if you don't get in writing that this is a loan, you're going to give them a low interest rate of like two and a half percent and they have to pay you back over 24 months and you're going to get it notarized and writing in something like that. Assume that it's a gift. Yeah, I think that's helpful too. Absolutely. So final question. So how can you tell if you're being truly financially generous without any ulterior motives or intentions, AKA trying to manipulate outcomes or feelings in your favor? This is a great question because it reminds me of the last question where the answer is kind of in the question. If you are being generous just for the sake of being generous, um, it, it just simply feels good to you. You like giving to this person, you like giving to this cause and you have the financial capacity to do so. That's your answer. That's generosity. But if you are giving to a person or a cause in the hopes that they do something differently with their behaviors, then that is worth examining. And and I think about this a lot, like if you're like, ooh, I'd, I'd happily give to a friend, but I really hope that means that then they'll invite me to their lake house or whatever the case may be, right? Then, you know, there there is this secret wish. Um, and I also think it's worth exploring those secret desires. I don't love how this person said manipulate. Well, you know, they can say manipulate, but I think it's worth kind of exploring what's underneath that. Like if I give this person money, I hope that they give me X in return. I also think it's ex worth exploring. What is that thing you want in return? Do you want more one-on-one -on -one time with them? Do you want more regular phone calls with them? Like what is the thing that you're trying to get in return? And can you ask them, for that without having to give them money and if the answer is yes then i think you've got your answer in that you can start nurturing that relationship in a way that you want it to be nurtured without having to go through the dynamics of falling into enabling or codependency again remember with codependency you're giving or helping someone in the hopes that you get a specific type of thing in return. So I think it's it's really worthwhile to kind of suss out where and why you're giving and what you're hoping to get out of it. Ooh, absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, definitely consider if money is being used as a placeholder or a way to stall, you know, from having difficult conversations, or is it a way to kind of have more intimacy or, you know, many different things. I think there's so much going on here. And this was such a delightful and wonderful conversation. I'm glad that we could tackle this very important juicy topic. Where can people find you and buy your book? Thanks, Melanie. So people can find me pretty much anywhere under my business name, which is Mind Money Balance. The the place I hang out the most at this moment in time is Instagram, but I have a, a little goal this year to get back on YouTube and be more active there. Um, so mindmoneybalance.com, youtube.com slash at mindmoneybalance or Instagram at mindmoneybalance. And I totally echo what your last guest said, Jason Vitug, about where to buy the book, The Financial Anxiety Solution. I am a fan of having your local bookstore order you a copy so you can keep those dollars in your community. And if you're struggling financially and you can't afford the book, The Financial Anxiety Solution, another great option is to see if your community library will order it for you so you can check it out and then it can circulate in your community. Love that. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was such a treat, Melanie. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.